being afraid of if I say no, it's going to remove opportunity. I've said no to a lot of things. And the last time I checked, I still have a lot of opportunity. So this is why I'm so outspoken about like, get clear, get intentional, use a journal, use a scorecard. Like these are the things because nobody knows you better than you know yourself. This is Taking the Lead, a podcast for B2B tech professionals, leaders, and executives who want to learn from female icons in the tech industry. In each episode, host Christina Brady interviews women who are driving revenue for some of the most respected tech companies in the world. Are you ready to get inspired? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly. I have an incredible, wonderful guest with me today. I have Amy Volas on the show. Amy, welcome. Thank you for having me. I love this. This makes me very happy. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Having you on the show is a dream come true for me. So I'm going to fangirl out a little bit, but try to contain myself because I, I love your voice. I love your perspective. You have this incredible experience and you're such a real authentic person of high integrity. And so I am honored to have this conversation. And I would love to just hear in your words a little bit about your story. You're doing a lot right now. I think biggest thing, you're the founder and CEO of Avenue Talent Partners, but you play in a lot of areas. So tell us your story, how you got where you are, the story of Amy. I do play in a lot of areas, which I'm sure I'll end with. But yeah, so I like to say sales is my first business love. Startups will be my second. I come from the old school. I can't even believe I'm saying this. I've been in the game for over 25 years. And I came from the world of having to do all the things. And I was thrown into the deep end. So I've survived several downturns. I got into sales after the dot-com bubble. So they weren't even called startups. They were called dot-coms. And I was thrown into the deep end. I loved this company. I'm a Chicago girl, born and, born and bred, raised, whatever, moved around a bunch growing up, but ended up back in Chicago as an adult after college and had my career there and started my career there. And I started out as a tech recruiter, which I'm cringing for anybody seeing this. And not that I have a problem with tech recruiting, I couldn't tell you anything about tech. I don't understand it. I can't code a darn thing. Don't know it. And yet I was recruiting people for it. And I loved the company and loved the people. And some of my dearest friends came from that experience. But I learned a valuable sales lesson and business lesson that we had about 98% of our eggs in this one basket. And we lost almost all of that business in one fell swoop after 9-11. And I survived several layoffs and the CEO who I would have just lived and died for sat me down and said, we love you, but there really isn't anything here for you to recruit for last time I checked. And if you want to stay here and if we have any sort of fighting shot, you're going to have to get into sales. And this was like gnarly, meaty services based enterprise selling. I had no training. I had very little support and it wasn't that they didn't care. It was because we just didn't have resources. And yeah, the rest is history. And as much as that was hard and as much as the company folded and that was devastating, I learned a lot. I still loved it. I experienced a lot and the rest is history in terms of enterprise sales. So got into it, loved it, have sold both products and services, also have been a sales leader myself made the conscious decision as I was promoted early on in my career 
because I was a horrible sales leader and a total jackass to get back into individual contribution. And then I came back to it later in terms of leadership. Once I grew up and I figured out that, oh, you mean my way isn't the only way of doing things and kind of got over myself a little bit and figured out, wow, people, there are a lot of different shades of gray there. And so I came back to sales leadership after learning a lot of lessons, started three companies my first company I started in 2008, which was the second major downturn and recession that I survived. I don't suggest starting a company in a major recession like I did and started Avenue Talent Partners, my second company in 2015. And I combined all of my experiences into helping startup founders get out of their own way when it comes to hiring executive sales and CS leaders the first time around. So I care deeply about our ecosystem. It's why I'm so outspoken about um, using my voice to try to pay these lessons forward that I've learned the hard way that I see others learn the hard way. It doesn't have to be that way, which is the best news of all. And that is really my life's work is to tying all of it together. I've cracked the code. I have a methodology. It is very much people centric, but there's also a methodology and process around it to helping founders get it right to defy the turnover odds that we see and to doing this business well without taking the icky shortcuts that I get to hear about behind the scenes every stinking day. So that's my jam. I also started a, or co-founded, I didn't start it, I co-founded a sales community called Thursday Night Sales, and I am a strategic advisor, and I'm also an LP for Stage 2 Capital. So these are the things that I do, and I too am a fangirl. Fun fact about Christina and I, we we met in real life recently and it was kismet and now she has stuck with me for the rest of her life. So here we are. <laughs> so thank you again. It's, it's, the brainwashing is working. You're thinking it's all me. This is <laughs> you're the head and I'm the neck. Um, damn Amy. Okay. You said I just wrote for basically that entire time. And I feel like this is great. We have three episodes worth of content now. So let's <laughs> dig into number one. First thing, well, you said a lot of things that I was just like, amazing. I want to dig in. Because you're such an open book, you also seem like you have a really, really high level of self-awareness. And I have to say, of all the things that you listed, there's two things that I think make for an incredible professional and an incredible human being. And that's a high level of self-awareness and ability to create a methodology around what you're successful in. And both of those things are what you mentioned. First one I want to dig into is you mentioned you were a horrible sales leader at first. And I don't know that I hear a lot of people admit that. And I, speaking of kismet, when I first went into leadership, I would go so far as to say that like, I kind of sucked a little bit and, and I didn't want to accept that. So what made you a horrible sales leader the, at your first go of it? I expected, I was a very, very talented individual contributor and I realized success quickly without any training. I remember when I was in Chicago, when I met you, we did the architectural tour and it dawned on me, like I saw the building and there's a funny story about the building that I worked in where I got thrown into sales. And then in the same breath, I thought, wait, that's where I worked. And that, and it, all the memories came flooding back. I would have lunch in the grassy knoll in front of this building and read every sales book that I could get my hands on. And I was self-taught and I tried things and I screwed things up and I found sort of my rhythm that was working for me. And then I cracked my own code and it started really clicking. And without any training, I was closing seven-figure deals. And that, I I don't know how that happened, but it did. And when that happens, 
you start becoming noticed in good ways and in bad ways. In good ways from leadership, they want more of that. In bad ways from your peers that you think are friends that then get threatened by you, that then are nasty to you. And so it was a hard time in my life, if I'm being honest, where it's like, wow, I'm doing well, but I'm also being sort of stabbed so hard in the back with people that would want to go to happy hour with me and celebrate me. But the minute that I turned around had the most horrific things to say. And then ultimately they had to be my direct reports. <laughs> and so it was, it was, it was this thing that was happening that was really tricky. And the way that the business was set up, it wasn't just that they were my direct reports. I also had hundreds of people in the field that were reporting up into me. And I was all of like 24, 25, 26. Like I was a puppy. And I had no leadership training, by the way. So I had no idea what I was doing. And the biggest theme was I was raised, raised as a loose term. I had heavy influence by a male figure in my life that is someone that has been in sales their whole life and had success. And he would tell me a lot. Don't ever share what you do because they'll screw you over. That was ingrained in my brain. And you know, that has happened to me, by the way. And it really is a yep. bad feeling when that does happen. But later on in life, I learned about the power of an abundance mindset versus scarcity. And that's a scarcity mindset. and It does not serve you very well. So I leaned into the scarcity mindset. And I also leaned into, I know what works and I've had success. And this is how we're going to do it. And it was my way or the highway. And that is a horrible way to be. And I made no friends in that process. It, you want to talk about zero ability to consensus build with your team of trying to get things done. And it just brought out the worst, I think, in everybody. And somehow we still were successful as a team because I'm the kind of person that if it's on my watch, nothing's going to go down. Like I'll do it myself before anything happens. But I realized, wow, I'm burning myself out. People are miserable. I'm miserable. I had to manage people that also I didn't trust that didn't trust me going into it because of the backstabbing. Like all these things are just happening. And so I raised my hand and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go back to where the action is. And I want to be where my buyer is. And I feel like that's the muscle that I want to exercise and strengthen the most that still is weak, that needs to get stronger. And they looked at me like I had 8,000 heads. Like, what is the matter with you? Uh, and that's exactly what I did. And I broke norms that way. And I was super cool with it. And my life got a lot better as a result of that. And I stayed doing that for a long time to the point where people would say, now it's time to promote you. And I would say, no, it's time to grow me. And they'd be like, what do you mean? And I'm like, and they were like, what? And I remember talking about this a lot with my therapist where it's like the old archaic way of growth would be you climb the ladder, you go up, you get promoted. But in my mind's eye, it was, I just want to grow as an individual in my career. And so when I would say I want to grow, when they would say it's time to promote you, and I'd say, no, it's time to grow me. And they'd look at me like I was crazy. And they would say, what do you mean by that? Because we don't know what to do with that. I would have to come up with my own plan of, well, wait, no, give me like the top 10 global accounts. And even if that's clawback and that's like the most gnarly, non-sexy, hard stuff, I want to crack through and use my brain and figure things out 
or if that's breaking into global or if that's starting a new segment of enterprise. Because with an enterprise, it's not just enterprise. You have global, you have major, you have, I mean, there's a lot of different things. And I wanted to do that. And I did. And it was cool. And I loved it. And then when I mastered that, I was like, oh, I actually really love people. And there's something that I get a really big charge out of helping them. And I'm a little bit more mature and wise now. And so maybe it's time for me to come back to that. So much of what you said was quotable. <laughs> like repeating that all back, this idea of don't promote me, grow me. You, as you're talking through your experience, I was brought back to a lot of mine early on in leadership. And I imagine a lot of people listening have felt something very similar with the backstabbing and the cruelty that happens. And just the idea of, you never forget the first time that somebody steals your light. Like you never forget the first time that you put your whole heart into something and it's true, incredible, meaningful work. And then somebody else rides that wave all the way to their own success. And you're left sitting there holding the bag. Like, what, what do I do with this now? And that distrust, I think, is one of the hardest things, especially for women in this industry or any marginalized group to let go of is that lack of trust. I think we carry with us for a really long time. And when I think back to my first leadership role, you've kind of helped me to identify that the biggest thing that I think made me a poor leader was fear of how I would be perceived because I was a new leader and because I was green. And so I had to puff up my ego and I had to protect myself and I had to prove I deserve to be here. I deserve to be here. I deserve to be here. And that became what was most important to me was prove that you should be where you are but then doing that without being a great leader and actually doing what it meant to be in the seat. And I think that's what so many people deal with. Another thing that you said was you came up with kind of this idea of grow me and then give me these tough accounts. Let me do the work. I got to ask, where does your tenacity come from? <laughs> well, how much time do you have? Because you sound like my therapist now. Surprise, I'm your therapist. <laughs> Welcome, come snuggle. I think it starts out without going so deep. I think for me, my parents got divorced when I, my dad left my mom when I was four. I don't remember them being together. My first memory is of me being a child alone. By the way, I had a good childhood, right? And my mom loves me and is amazing. And I had wonderful grandparents and, you know, lots of things. But I think there is that unrequited love and support and what a dad should be like that has haunted me my entire life and feeling abandoned and my mother and my sister who remembers this I don't really struggled in that moment and I was just a little 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 girl and I think the spotlight went so much on that that I was left to my own defenses and had to figure I mean, if I look at my sister and I raised the exact same way with the exact same environment with the same things, we couldn't be any more different. And I have always been the like, figure it out. Nothing has been given to me. I don't respond well to victim or entitled mentality. I don't care. Like I just haven't. And because of that, somewhere, somehow, I give no Fs <laughs> and I just will do. And sometimes that gets me in trouble 
but I rather get in trouble than just be a wilting petal of a flower in the corner, not fighting for what I think is right. And by the way, I've, you know, being a woman in sales and being one of the only people that are like me in my career, growing up through the career, I've had founders, CEOs, executives tell me, I mean, one time when I was getting promoted and I was making too much money, I got sat down and they said, you're lucky for who you are and what you do and your demographic. You're lucky to be getting paid this much as they slid the new comp plan across the desk. Cute. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I've always just had this in me of that's messed up or that's not right or whatever. And I was raised to use my voice. I was and and to be supported that way. And so I think all of those things, not getting too deep and trying to make this an out loud therapy session, but I think all of those things have made me me for the good parts and the bad parts of me. I'm not afraid to say like, your agenda doesn't work for me. This actually does. And to cut across or against the grain, like I don't, I'm not going to die inside to have to do this job because I pour myself into my work. Work is not just work. It is personal. It means something. It's in my DNA. It, it, it defines a lot of who I am and I care deeply about it. I'm not going to do something because you think I should because it's the next level of whatever the salary compensation career planning committee says. I don't care about what you think. I care about what I have to do every single day. And either we're aligned or we're not. And if we're not, cool, let's talk about it. But just because you think I'm ready for promotion, and there's a difference. It's one thing if I'm afraid, but I'm ready for it. Cool, push me. It's a different thing if I'm like, it's not that I'm afraid. It's I don't want to do this. I want to do this over here. And that's not going to fulfill me. And I'm going to feel dead inside. There's a very big difference between pushing through fear and coming out better for it than doing something that we think we should do to satisfy somebody else. That's not satisfying. And in fact, that holds us back. Yeah. Or a fear that if I turn that job down that I don't really want, I'm never going to get that opportunity again. Right. It's the fear of turning down an opportunity because as women, we may never get that again. Like you said, we may, you're lucky to have this role. You're lucky we're giving you this opportunity. And if you turn it down, there's that fear. I'll never get there again. My career aspirations are over. I've turned it down once as if there's, there's, there's one or two opportunities in life where we can actually ascend. And if we turn them down, because heaven forbid, it's not the right thing, it may never happen again. And I have to think there's probably so many people sitting in roles right now that they're not passionate about, that they don't love because they're afraid if they don't do that, they may never actually hit the goals that they want. It's like we we are living the lives that we feel we have to, to just have a shot at doing what we want. And look, unpopular counterpoint to that, sometimes you do do have, sometimes you do have to do that. I had yeah. to pay my dues. There are plenty of things that I've had to do that I did not love or I wasn't passionate about. But I knew I had to do it to master my craft to get ahead. And to your last point about being afraid of if I say no, it's going to remove opportunity. I've said no to a lot of things. And the last time I checked, I still have a lot of opportunity. So this is why I'm so outspoken about like get clear, get intentional, use a journal, use a scorecard. Like these are the things. 
because nobody knows you better than you know yourself. And having everybody else try to define you for you, it's going to catch up to you. It usually happens somewhere in your 30s when you really start thinking about this. At least that's when it happened to me. And my therapist will agree with this. Right around 35, you're like, what does this all mean? What, what's happening? What's going on? And sometimes it happens before that. It can start happening around 30. It can happen in your 20s. I think it's like every decade you're like, what am I doing? I know what 10 years of life now lived looks like and what's the next 10 or what's the next five. And in my opinion, it goes by so quickly. I don't want it to be for anybody else, but for what's important to what I do because nobody else does it but me. You also mentioned, you know, the idea of not wanting to go too much into this idea of therapy and then also being getting getting in trouble sometimes, right? <laughs> and I feel like I would be I would be remiss if I didn't think about just where my own headspace is right now. And, you know, the the recent right that was removed at the federal level with Roe v. Wade, we're looking at very, very recent school shootings and baby formula shortages. We are looking at people who are working in jobs. They are afraid they're going to be laid off. They are afraid that if they say no to an opportunity that they're going to wind up on the chopping block. So they're accepting jobs that they maybe don't want for fear that they're not going to have an income and can't support their families. We're looking at the the outcome of COVID on mostly women and their choices as to whether stay or leave in the workforce. And I just feel like I'm kind of ready to get in trouble. I mean, I, I, like you, recently posted on LinkedIn just my thoughts around Roe v. Wade. And out of the woodwork, like cockroaches, crawled people who I have never met, who I have never seen, calling me horrific things. And I had this moment where I wondered, like, is this bad? Is this getting in trouble? Am I using the small voice that I have in the wrong way? And when is the right time to speak up about injustice? And so when you think about this idea of getting into trouble in the world that we're in right now, what kind of trouble do you think that we should be getting into? I think trouble comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes and flavors. And I think if you're going down any sort of trouble lane, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And when it comes to Roe v. Wade, it's worth it for me personally. There are other things that I don't talk about because it's not worth it for me. Because I do absolutely have something to say about it, but it's time and place. And LinkedIn, in my opinion, is not the time or place for that. Roe v. Wade will affect every single one of us, regardless of your religious beliefs, regardless of your gender, regardless of your personal belief system, regardless of your political affiliation. When you look at the data, the data, the actual facts of forcing pregnancy upon someone. Your local community is affected in the way of crime, in the way of forced child care, in the way of health care, in the way of an economic hemorrhage that cannot be sustained. So, for all of the people out there that talk about, uh, people gaming the system for welfare. What do you think is going to happen to welfare? What do you think what do you think is going to happen to local crime? What do you and these are just like the basics, right? Like that's just like the obvious. Then there's the not so obvious. How would anybody like it 
if you went to the doctor and you didn't have a choice, and I'm not even talking about having an abortion or not, I'm talking about, and I'm going to share something personally. I have female issues. I don't have children. I have all sorts of uterine issues. I've had six DNCs so that I don't get uterine cancer. Okay. So like, how about that one? Or how about my mom had five miscarriages before she had me? And how horrible would it be? And by the way, miscarriages, they run rampant in my family, my gram, my aunt, my other aunt, my cousin. So for those saying, well, you can just go three states over to get what you need. No, you cannot. No, you can't. Or how about the fact of the matter being that if I got raped and I ended up pregnant and I'm in a bad mental state, how about the fact that the rapist has more rights than I do? Or how about I've had many, many, many friends of mine that have gone through the heartbreaking reality that they cannot have children without medical intervention. So they shouldn't be parents now because we're going down that route too. Or how about girls that have horrible problems with their periods that need birth control? They're not sluts. They have problems that they need to pill for. These are all use cases that people don't consider. My friends that have had infertility issues, one of them, who shall remain nameless, got pregnant with multiples, like five. Three of the embryos, oh my God. Three of the embryos were not okay. And it compromised her life and the two that were okay. They had to make the decision. Okay, so guess what? It's nobody's business. How would you like it if I told you what religion you had to subscribe to and believe? How would you like it if I told you you had to have a mandatory vasectomy to not spread your seed around all over the joint? How would you like that? You wouldn't like it. And I don't think that this has anything to do with any of that stuff. It has a simple thing to do with control. And yes. I am deeply, deeply concerned, troubled, scared, horrified, angered. And normally I wouldn't share any of these things, but this is how much I feel about that. So I guess, you know, on my posting, and for anybody that's here, it's an app on your phone. It's called Five Calls. If you're like, what do I do? I want to use my voice. I don't know how to get to my local alderman, congressman, state representative, guess what you do? They make it real easy and they give you a script so you know exactly what to say where you sound real smart to fight the fight. You download the Five Calls app. It could be gun control. It could be abortion. It could be Planned Parenthood. It could be the opioid crisis. It could be whatever it is that you believe in that you want to fight for. You download that app and all it takes is five calls every day. The app dials the numbers for you with the script. Boom. Like that. Wow. Yeah. Please download it. Please use it. Please do it for every, for everything that you believe in. Everything that you believe in. When you are angry and you're like, what do I do? Guess what? I can't do anything at the federal level until it's time to vote, but I can do something and it's called that five calls app. That's what I can do. I am feeling your authenticity in the pit 
of my soul and in my heart right now. And one, I want to thank you for being so authentic because that's, that's how we kind of all have to be right now. When the Roe v. Wade decision came down, one, I was, I was shocked. And in the very same day, I was sending one text message expressing my disgust that this is where we are going as a nation. And then the very next text message I sent was to a friend who recently had a baby asking if they needed any help or resources finding formula. One, boom, one right after the other. One, we're going to be forcing women and men, by the way, to have babies that they don't want to have, that they shouldn't have, that may not be healthy enough to have. We are, it is not just a women's issue. If you think this is only on women and men get away scot-free, I know plenty of guys who don't want to have kids with their one night stands or with the women that they rape or however any situation comes down where they wind up with a pregnant woman. It's not just a women's issue. It's a men's issue too. It's a trans issue. It's an LGBTQIA issue. As an IVF mother myself, infertility, I actually thought that I wasn't going to be able to have kids. I have been strictly, strictly pro-choice for my entire life. And that's the thing about choice is it's about choice. I had always wanted to have a child always wanted to. And I've always said it should be a choice. Yes, I am pro a woman deciding to get rid of a pregnancy if she does not want one. As a mother, I'm saying that, which I've been damned for on LinkedIn or anywhere else. How, you, how can you as a mother say that you would support killing a child in the womb? <laughs> I said, well, first of all, we could dig into the science of that all we want. But as an IVF, mom myself, I went through four years of, of infertility, multiple miscarriages. I have a lot of uterine issues as well, had to have scrapes and surgeries and polyp removals. I had to do a lot of inseminations and Clomid and medication and shots. And my son finally came with my third round of IVF. The first round of IVF didn't take. The second round of IVF, I miscarried. And the third was my son and they actually put two embryos in and I had my son and they even said that because I was so high risk that if they put two embryos in, they would recommend aborting one of the embryos to allow the one to survive. And I'm thinking through my entire journey there of living in Illinois, I live in Chicago and all of the privilege that I have of being what is right now a blue state, that all of that just felt like options to me. And I still have two embryos that are on ice. I don't, I don't want any more children. I love my son, but the fact now that even the ability for women who want a family to go through the same experience that I went through may not be allowed. Depending on what laws are passed, I don't know what my rights are going to be with the embryos that I have frozen or what I can do with them. And it's just thinking through the raw and visceral nature of being a woman with a child who also supports choice. That's what I get challenged on more than anything is how can you as a mother support something like this? And I said, well, as a woman, I would support the choice over my own body. Um, and that's the end of it. Keep, keep your religion and your belief out of my uterus. That's what it comes down to. It is Roe v. Wade was passed the year before I was born. And I don't know a lifetime of what in my lifetime, I don't know what this looks like. Uh, and anybody on LinkedIn that I'm seeing, unless they were, uh, a young adult or a teenager, in the seventies, like they don't know, like we don't know. And so a lot of the people that we engage, they don't know, they don't remember, they don't, they will, they don't, we don't know what this looks like. This reality looks like, and that is the scariest part. There are so many different things that people don't consider. Like this is a problem. I think not just for this, for sales, for business, for life, for relationships, 
it's this very short-term thinking and the ramifications in the bigger picture for this it's deeply troubling and look i'm not here saying let's kill babies and anybody that comes to my feed and ever says that i will block you because that's not what my rhetoric is that is not what i am suggesting i am not picketing in front of your house saying hey oh and by the way for those that are pro-life phenomenal i hope that you are at every place now where people are forced to have children adopting them i hope that you have all the resources to do all of those things because we're going to need that kind of support oh and we don't have universal health care and we don't have universal child care and our system is not set up for that and so it's just it it just is troubling to me and it's scary and i am a chicago girl that now lives in michigan and we are in the balance i don't even know what is going to happen in this state and I, I will say I am deeply grateful that I am now of the age and in the place in my own uterus where it doesn't matter anymore because I can't, like, this factory right. is shut down. But for my nieces, for my friends, girls, for any young woman out there or girls that are coming up or girls that are about to be, I'm scared for you. And I wish I had more of a hopeful message. The only thing that I can say is I'm going to fight and I hope you do, too. That's it. We're not backing down. I intend to fight in whatever that looks like, whether that is my voice, my wallet, my actions, my time, my ability to just make it until tomorrow. And my commitment is to continue to challenge this thinking when I see it. And I think there that also comes with a healthy amount of blocking. Right. I. I can only be called a baby killer so many times. And to be clear, I've never I've never had an abortion. I am privileged that I have never needed one for a medical or personal choice. That also means that women who do have abortions or choose to terminate pregnancies are not murderers either. So I have an issue anytime it's you want to kill babies, you want to be a murderer. Yeah. Having an abortion does not make you a murderer. No woman wants to go through that zero. Even if you are pregnant by mistake and you have no health issues and you simply don't want to bring a child into the world and you terminate your pregnancy, you are not a murderer. And to say that anybody who is pro-choice automatically means that they are pro-abortion and pro-killing babies would be the same as to say that anybody who is pro-Second Amendment is a murderer and wants a gun to kill someone with. Now, they would challenge that thinking and say, no, 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 I don't want a gun to kill somebody. Well, I don't want rights over my body to kill babies either. We each want to have a choice and that's what it comes down to. So I am with you in the same camp of there's action to be taken. There is using your voice when you have it. There is what do we do while we are at work with our employees and there is what do we do personally. And I just challenge every person listening to this to really determine where you are and if your beliefs are rooted in wanting people to believe what you believe and do what you would do or to do what is actually right, which is always going to be choice and autonomy. Always. We could dig into this and other topics all day, but I feel like we can put this in a lighter place because there's not going to be a whole lot of that going forward. I feel like we're we're in for a year of heaviness. So let's round this out and bring it into rapid reveal and just learn a little bit more about the incredible person that you are, Amy. We'll bring it back. Okay. Softball. If you're up for rapid reveal, yes. are you in the are you in a headspace for yeah, it? Okay. Sure. I'm like, I got to get myself in the headspace for it, but we need it. 
only because you're super interesting and I want to hear more about it. So <laughs> first, <laughs> softball, who was the first woman who inspired you professionally? My Aunt Susan. I want to hear about Aunt Susan. So my Aunt Susan is my mom's sister. And my mom was destined to be like a stay-at-home homemaker mom, loved that, sewed the things, cooked the things, did the things, planted the things, like total like, you know, mom of like my youth and, and just like swim team mom, like all that. My Aunt Susan was the complete opposite of that. And I was always fascinated by her. And when I would go to her house, I would be in her closet trying on her suits and her high heels. And I just was fascinated by the business trips that she would go on. She was a baller businesswoman. She was in the CPG industry as an executive, was promoted, ended up ultimately branching out on her own, started her own business, just was an entrepreneur forced to be reckoned with, wicked smart, really driven. And I looked up to her and I admired her and I was fascinated by her. And she was one of the only two, right? So like as she was talking about a lot of the deals that she did, because I would always be fascinated by she and my grandfather. I mean, I'd always want to like talk about the business. And she'd be describing it. it was all the men that she'd be talking about, not a lot of women. And so it was just really cool to see that. So go Aunt Susan, go. I Like Aunt Susan, I love it. The first, the first, I want to say like the first time that I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a boss if I can. I remember my mom was the pianist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And when we were younger as an artist, she didn't have a lot of money to afford childcare for us. And so she would bring us with when she had concerts, me and my two sisters. And she would set up a playpen and a play area in the locker room of Chicago uh, Symphony Hall. And while we were down there, she would ask the other musicians when they weren't on stage to come down and check on us. And so I spent my childhood of a lot of sitters being the best musicians in the world in between sets that would come sit down on the ground with us in their gowns, with their makeup and their gorgeous jewelry and like play tic-tac-toe. And in my mind, I was like, I want to be the woman in the beautiful dress and the heels making incredible music and just like able to sit down and play a game with a kid. I was like, I want to be, I want to be her. So and you One are day. her. I can attest to the sparkle that you have and the ability <laughs> to like get down and dirty at the same time. Yeah, I can confidently say that that happened. So that's awesome. I love that. I'd wear a gown everywhere if I could. Okay. Number two, yes. what is an irrational fear of yours? Getting sick. Like if you have sniffles, oh. if you are near the sniffles, if I think that you... If I do get sick, I will paper trail your ass and like, oh, no, nope. I will patient zero you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I getting sick is getting sick is it, that ultimately then leads me to the fear of death. Yeah. Nope. No, no, thank you. None of it. Nope. No. So, so the last two years were fun for you. Knock on wood. I have not knock on wood. Like I better like all. The, I'm going to knock on some too. Like there's got to be some knock wood. on all the things. The last time I got sick was well before the pandemic. So, Ooh. yeah. You probably have a good immune system. All right. We won't jinx you. We won't like, jinx you. All the things. Yeah. <laughs> Number three, do you have any reoccurring dreams? I do. I do. I'm a big dreamer. And there is one. And it is. it involves the same person. And it's been the same person for many, many years. And it is like... 
I'm looking for them and then I finally find them and then it's this big dramatic thing and it's very it's very like lots of feelings, lots of drama. So glad that I finally found you and this like whole thing of like I care about you so much and then you go and then heartbreak. Oh, and you keep having that dream? Yes. Oh, I know. You wake up. <laughs> I know. I mean, you ask. That's the dream. I know. I mean, at least, you know, I'm being honest. Like, I could be like, yes, this dream is where I'm flying around as a hummingbird. No, that's not the dream. <laughs> that's the real life dream. That's the dream that we have, you and I both, in between <laughs> meetings. And you and I both realize that we're both obsessed with hummingbirds. And funny enough, two days after I met you in person, I was scheduled to get my next tattoo, which was and is a hummingbird. So that's our dream is just hummingbirds surrounding us, bringing peace. And you know, it's real because right here is a hummingbird feeder, like right behind yeah, me. So, right yes, there. yes, yeah. all the things. Love yes. <laughs> all right. Number four. What are you the most passionate about right this very moment? Well, we already talked about that. We, yeah, using my voice to fight the good old fight and um, using that five calls, five calls app every day because that's the only way that I can think about taking action right now to allow everybody to have a choice. And that starts with our choice. So, yes. Hell yeah. Hands on your back. And then number five, what's one of your pet peeves? Not following through. If you tell me you're going to do something, you don't do it. If you do not follow through, you are almost dead to me. Like I just, I, I, I go old school where our word is our bond and it's okay. Things happen, but I expect you to be a responsible person to say, yeah, you know what? I told you I would do this and here's why I can't do this. Even if it's like a carrier pigeon, a text, I don't care. Just let me know what's up. I do not like it when people are like, uh, and they just fall off the face of the earth. And then they come back like nothing, like, oh, cool, cool. No, not cool, cool. Not cool. Not, cool. not, not okay. Major pet peeve, major problem for me. That's a big one. And I think it's a good professional lesson too, that following through at minimum is what you should probably do at work with everything that you start to let people know who you are and to build your professional brand. Speaking of somebody with an unbelievable professional brand, I want to thank you, Amy, for not only coming on the show, but being so authentic with me. I think I really needed to have a conversation with somebody who could lay out what is going on in the world in such an eloquent and beautiful way like you did. So thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. I think there's other people who are probably going to want to meet you, talk to you, or at least say, hey, you inspired me to download that app. You inspired me to speak up. You inspired me to push back on somebody who is making me question my values. How can people find you and connect with you? Well, I am very outspoken on the interwebs. You can come find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Amy Vols, although I am at the connection limit. So I promise I do not ignore you, but you can engage with me there. I'm on the Twitter. I uh, AvenueTalentPartners.com is my website and ThursdayNightSales.com where I show up every week for hours at a time and we have real open talk where it's a safe place to talk about all sorts of things. So there you go. Yes. And there's no follower limit, right? On LinkedIn? No, no, there's no follower limit. And I mean, like, follow Amy. Yeah, the, no follower limit. Yeah. And for the conversations that I start, I try to be very, very thoughtful about being very responsive and actually having conversation. I don't ignore people. So yeah, there's that. I love it. Well, thank you for coming and being an incredible guest on 
taking the lead. And to everybody out there who is listening, if this is a hard time in your life, just know that you are surrounded by folks who love you and appreciate you and will act in your best interest. We will see you all next time. Thank you. I appreciate you. This was awesome. And for anybody listening, thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Taking the Lead. If you're looking for more inspiring stories from women leaders in B2B tech, then visit us at motionagency.io slash taking the lead.